Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's just going to embed a Google chip in my skull now to get it over with. You're welcome, Sergey. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview my executive producer, Erica Anderson, recently conducted with Erica. You're going to help me here with the name. Yes, Andrea Matwishan, Rhymes with Permission. Rhymes with Permission, which we may not have over some of these topics you're talking about. This is a sort of sequel to an episode you did recently about biohacking. Talk about the episode first uh, for anyone who didn't hear it. Yeah, well, you should definitely check it out. But the cheat sheet of this, uh, why Silicon Valley loves biohacking, is that I've recently become fascinated by how people in the tech community are treating their bodies uh, the same way a hacker might treat a computer. So that first episode I did was focused on intermittent fasting, the controversial idea that drastic changes to your diet can make you more focused and productive. Yeah, this is made popular by several tech CEOs, including Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Square. Yeah, totally. But uh, Dr. Andrea Matwishan, she's an associate dean of innovation at Penn State Law, and she has a different focus. Recently, she's been writing a lot about what she calls calls the Internet of Bodies. Oh, my God, which sounds like some gross evolution of the Internet of Things. Kind of. worried, Erica. Oh, Explain I was, it I for was the worried. people. I was worried when I did this, <laughs> this conversation, Kara. green is people. So, yeah, right. Well, the name definitely evokes the Internet of Things, but unlike, say, connecting your fridge or your light bulbs to the Internet, this is about more personal and more permanent forms of integrating technology into your life or your body. And that's what Dr. Matwishan calls quote, smart devices attached to and inside our bodies, end quote. And she's raising the alarm because our legal system and our policymakers probably aren't prepared to deal with the consequences of more of these devices entering our lives and our brains. Okay, definitely not prepared. Just yeah, <laughs> I know, right? being very nice there, but that sounds like a very worthy and very frightening topic for discussion. Let's hear it. Great. So welcome to Recode Decode, Andrea. Pleasure to be here. I should say Dr. Andrea Matwishan. It's it's all good. You earned that. <laughs> I respond to all things that are vaguely in the realm of my name. Oh, it's well, all good. you shouldn't. You should only <laughs> respond to doctor. So welcome to Recode Decode. Let's just get this started. So I recently did an episode on biohacking and yeah, why great. Yeah, thank you. And why Silicon Valley is so obsessed with and interested in hacking the body for some would say like optimal performance. And a few people on Twitter reached out to me and to Kara and said, oh my God, you need to talk to Andrea. She's doing super interesting research on like the next level of biohacking, which is this world in which you're not just optimizing your body by eating better food. You're actually optimizing your body by having like electronic tattoos or artificial pancreases, like actually things embedded in your body that make your body a piece of the internet, a piece of kind of the, you say, internet of bodies. So before we get into that fascinating research and where we're going and 
people will probably be slightly scared. Tell me a little bit about you, how you got started, where you're at, the kind of research you do. Sure. So I started out as a corporate lawyer in uh, the late 90s during the first tech boom and bust. And what I realized is that security was clearly the future. Uh, So I was working with everything from uh, large publicly traded companies who were just starting up their investor relations websites to small startups that were creating different kinds of software, some of which was powering the exchanges. And particularly when I noticed how the financial services sector was starting to rely increasingly on software for the day-to-day of their operations and our markets, of course, and the SEC had already started making noises about some early regulation, I paused and I realized the bank robbers go where the money is. And Mm -hmm. so security is the next generation of issues. And then I went to a seminar and learned about public key infrastructure, and my head exploded, and I was in love, and that was it. What kind of tech companies were you working for when you're doing corporate law? Oh, you know, it was a... a mixed bag. So um, one client was a marketing firm that was doing some cutting-edge digital marketing things. Um, Kind of a sad story. They ended up buying a dot-com and building an imprudent building that pushed them into bankruptcy. Okay. So uh, that was an early formative experience for me as a corporate lawyer watching this publicly traded company fall into bankruptcy because of basically two imprudent business decisions, partially driven by the hype of the first tech boom. Interesting. Well, yeah, you'd have a great perspective on what's happening if you're in the legal departments. So were you based in D.C. then or out in the Valley? No, I actually worked in Chicago. Okay. So it was right down the street, uh, down LaSalle, where cool. most of the big firms are in that yep. neighborhood, straight yep. down from the Chicago Board of Options. So how, So jump ahead. So now you are a professor at Penn State. Yeah. So jump ahead. How did you get from there to Penn State? So... <laughs> uh, Nothing is ever straightforward, especially for those of us who work in this field, right? So we all have our weird autobiographical trajectories. So when I was in law school, none of the stuff that I teach today existed. It just wasn't yet a thing on uh, law faculties. Um, So it was really my clients that taught me things. And I did know I wanted to be a law professor, and I was secretly doing a PhD nights and weekends while Mm. I was in law practice. Um, And so after four years of law practice, my alma mater gave me a teaching offer, um, and so I started as a non-tenure track faculty member, finished my dissertation, defended, um, then got my first teaching job at University of Florida, running an interdisciplinary tech center, mm. but being a tenure track faculty member on the law faculty. From there, the Wharton School had hunted me, so I taught at the Wharton School for a while um, and saw the marketing and operations and information systems side of all of these questions and learned tremendous amounts from my colleagues in other departments. Mm. And um, then I spent a year-ish with the Federal Trade Commission as their senior policy advisor on security and privacy as an academic in residence. Wow. And then I had a fellowship at Princeton for a year with the Center for Information Technology Policy. So you just went deep into learning about the future, and you didn't feel like you could do that in corporate law. So you went back to school, you got your PhD, then you started jumping around to interesting institutions. So it was... I was actually in a JD PhD program. So I this was there was always a method to the madness of ending up teaching, but I felt like mm-hmm. much as a doctor needs a residency to understand on another level. Yep. I felt like I couldn't possibly huh. understand the reality of corporate deal making and practice without practicing. And it was really my clients that taught me the starter knowledge that let me That's advance. Fascinating. And the rest of it to the extent that I have technical 
depth, um, which uh, has been hard won (laughs) because the generation of security pros uh, that are sort of my age are all self-taught. And that was true for me, too, from the legal and technical sort of architecture side. It was going to hacker conferences, presenting at security conferences. So my first hacker con was in 2003. I spoke at Black Hat, and I knew no one. And I just thought, hey, it would be kind of cool to see what I can learn here, because that's just how I roll. And so I just show up in Vegas. I'd never even been to Vegas before. It was quite the scene. It was hilarious. (laughs) And people were so nerdy in good yeah. ways, engaging yeah. in depth and attacking each other, each other's ideas on yeah. security, Amazing. that it was fantastic. I felt mm. like I was in a differently rigorous setting where ideas still matter. That might and have so been the golden hooked. age. Yeah. yeah, I was yeah. completely hooked. And so that fed into my desire to connect deeper with the, the tech side as well as law side. So I've cool. felt like I've lived two parallel lives in my whole career, yep. this tech community that I'm still deeply embedded in and learn from on a regular basis, and the law side that was evolving differently in more traditional ways, but bridging that conversational divide, that policy divide, that's really the Mm -hmm. bulk of how I position myself or view myself as being able to contribute something to this conversation. All right. Well, you just helped me to understand how to better articulate my career as someone who's done a residency in tech but has a background in journalism and now I'm back. So um, so listen, tell me a little bit about you— you have a paper coming out. I want to just start, like, before we go into the paper and everything that comes out, like, I want to talk about this concept of the Internet of Bodies. So what does that mean? Sure. So uh, one of the tech developments that I have been following for years from a security standpoint in particular has been the Internet of Things. So we've connected billions of devices to the Internet, and some of them are adding value, and some of them are highly useful, and then some are kind of like the Juicero, if you'll remember the Juicero, mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily add much value in the what opinions was that, like, juicing? Of, it was a juicing device that was well-funded, but right. when it was released into the market, <laughs> basically people resoundingly mocked it as not providing extra value for the money, and it was kind of expensive, mm-hmm. and you could basically get the same effect by hand-squeezing the the mm-hmm. baggie of juice mm-hmm. that you inserted mm-hmm. into the machine. So the innovation was uneven in IoT, and from a security standpoint, I saw that there was this creeping vulnerability permeating the way that IoT was being built. There were supply chain integrity concerns. These devices were being harnessed into botnets, and so they were being used for denial-of-service attacks, um, and that has all escalated to sort of next-level concerns to the point where uh, the Mirai botnet, which harnessed DVRs, it harnessed um, webcams, it took down well-defended properties like Twitter, for example, and Reddit. So meanwhile, in med tech world, mm-hmm. I saw medical devices evolving to increasingly rely on software and Give us an example of a medical device. So several years ago, the FDA approved the first digital pills, mm. first in form as a concept and then in particular applications. So digital pills are pills that you swallow and they're sitting in your stomach and they talk to your phone from inside your stomach. Mm. And so that gives you, you know, potentially useful information. So, for example, if you have, say, an elderly patient who may not remember whether he's taken his 
pills, um, having the documentation of the pill talking to the phone in that use case, it potentially has utility uh, to yeah. assist in his treatment. Now, the the downside, because being steeped in security, unfortunately, I always see the downside simultaneously, mm-hmm. is that as we start uh, connecting things like artificial pancreases, which are also now approved, um, and there's a history of early medical devices such as pacemakers and their related systems and insulin pumps having histories of security vulnerabilities, and sometimes the companies weren't quick to want to fix them. Mm-hmm. So I saw this next generation of med tech coming and started worrying about those same dynamics from the last generations of med tech. And then meanwhile, on the IoT side, there's this dynamic happening. And that convergence of IoT with med tech into consumer devices that are not necessarily going to be classified as medical devices, that's Mm -hmm. when I realized oh, the first generation of it is already here. Mm -hmm. So the first generation Internet of Bodies devices are things we're very familiar with. Fitbits, Apple Watches, Google Glasses. And they've been... Augmenting, enhancing the body. Augmenting, enhancing the body from the outside. Okay. And so they've found at this point point homes in various contexts. You see Google Glasses adopted on factory floors. You see many folks on the street wearing Apple Watches to monitor certain bodily dynamics. And uh, the quantified self-movement was a thing, though we don't hear that term quite as much Mm -hmm. anymore. And so that desire for self-knowledge, self-archiving, it kind of connects with your prior podcast about the Mm -hmm. body hacking through nutrition, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And this was a level of self-quantification that in theory could enhance those kinds of enterprises. But what I also saw simultaneously is that that data was being then resold, repurposed, repackaged potentially, which had other kinds of social So first wave of Internet of Bodies, Fitbit, Apple Watch, an app that, let's say, tracks your menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. There, what is that app called? It's like OPR. There are a bunch now, yeah. Right, so, so, and then it's like, all right, you use these as a consumer. They're helpful. They're interesting. They, they allow you to kind of know more about your body, which is ultimately could be a good thing. But you start to see like these security, potential security concerns. Talk to me about what is level two and level three of the Internet of Bodies? Sure. So level two is body embedded devices. So those are the medical devices that I was just mentioning, the artificial pancreases, the pacemaker systems that rely on internet pushed updates for certain components. Which is not necessarily new, the pacemakers. Not necessarily new. These are sort of the the pacemakers are right. the earliest of course. second generation devices. You also have cochlear implants, which are an early second generation device. Cochlear implants now have Bluetooth capabilities. Mm-hmm. So that could be enhancing for someone who is a user of a cochlear implant in hearing, say, a TV mm-hmm. better. But as anyone who studies security knows, Bluetooth is unfortunately <laughs> frequently oh found vulner- to be vulnerable, yeah. and uh, it creates a new level of exposure for the user of this device. Right. And right. Uh, the attack surface is such that, you know, it's possible that someone could start messing with your cochlear implants' right. uh, so, perception so, and weird sounds, weird voices, etc. So, um, 
So level two then is like, are these implants in the body or in the ear? What is next? What is the third level? The third level we're just starting to experiment with, and both in the private sector and uh, DARPA in military context is experimenting with this, and it's body-melded devices. So we're talking about... Uh, well, brain implanted things. So, for example, people should see my eyes. They just got really big. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners are very savvy. They might know all about this, but I'm like, holy shit. So, go on. You're channeling what I was feeling <laughs> as I was watching right. the Neuralink presentation recently. Um, so, it's devices like Neuralink where there is a component inserted inside the brain uh, with some degree of procedure that injects or inserts things. And then there is an external communication link with computers outside the brain. Mm -hmm. So the model uh, of what this could work like in the best case scenario is that it is an extension of the processing capabilities of the human brain. So assuming that we view the body as just a carbon-based operating system and the brain is part of the hardware, the wetware that powers the outcomes Mm. of this carbon-based operating Mm. system, by having more computing power reside outside of our brains, we enable ourselves to have, you know, an extended frame, connect with Google, just think about cute cat pictures and have them appear for us. So So the premise is the body is is not enough. The body has so much, the mind and the body have so much more potential if only they could be augmented by a computer. So here we're crossing into an example of an optional augmentation. So the vision of these third generation Internet of Bodies devices have generally been about healthy bodies gaining that additional capability of brain processing. Mm -hmm. So while, you know, there have been times in my life where I certainly would have wanted to be um, (laughs) all-knowing, the the engineering uh, observer and uh, academic in me um, says, whoa there, how exactly are we building this? Why do we think it's not going to be subject to the same kinds of vulnerabilities, both technical and legal, that we see are already present in the IoT system around those devices, in prior generations of software, and in med tech conversations. And not learning from technology history is the surest way to have things end poorly. We're here with Dr. Andrea Matwishan, the Associate Dean of Innovation at Penn State Law and an expert on the Internet of Bodies. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. 
helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What Podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive. How much are you charging the pitch? <laughs> We're charging $99, and Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm-hmm. What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too? So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on. You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing this? What's, what's the moat? How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to go deep into what these potential legal ramifications could be and patent ramifications and if the software doesn't update. But let's just like ground a little bit more into the use case to use a tech term. So talk to me about like what would motivate someone to get that kind of, you know, implant in their brain? What is it? What's actually happening today? What have you seen? Sure. So uh, there are basically two sets of rationale. So one is potentially a medical use case. So having a neural implant can assist patients with Parkinson's. It can assist patients with uh, various kinds of physical diagnosed health Mm -hmm. issues and enable the patient to, in some cases, control the stimulation of the brain implant from their arm or from a remote control, or a doctor could even change settings for patients remotely in the Mm -hmm. way that some of these medical devices that are implanted in the brain. So you go in for a checkup, you learn where the status of your Parkinson's is, and, and the doctor just kind of goes over their computer and like uploads some kind of... Or it could even be in real time. You're sitting in your living room. You call mm. up your doctor, and the, you tell the doctor, I'm having changed symptoms. Right. And uh, you can either try to recalibrate it yourself, or depending on the structure of the various systems, the doctor might be able to remotely assist mm-hmm. you in recalibrating and, that device. And certainly, like, the technologists who are building this, like, must, and we'll, we'll try to have someone on the show who can speak to this. But there obviously is, I would assume, a whole lot of optimism, a whole lot of... We're going to improve the quality of life for people. We're going to take away these debilitating diseases and symptoms. So is that the mindset? Is the assumption that this stuff is ultimately a net good for society and for people? Yes, and I think that for some patients it absolutely is. It can be transformative in giving people quality of life and in addressing Mm -hmm. symptoms that are connected with diagnosed uh, illnesses or or diseases or deteriorations. Mm-hmm. Um, the key is to simultaneously build as well as we can. And so that's when we need to learn from the earlier generations of medical devices and help identify the ways that we can build more safely. And the FDA is one of the agencies that has been thinking about this actively. They Mm. have pre-market guidance for security in medical devices and post-market guidance. They're updating the pre-market guidance again. And so they're Mm. thinking about it. They're working with industry to try to make things better here. But uh, there's room for improvement also. And I've said this to the FDA as well. So uh, they they know my thoughts on this. Um, uh, For example, adverse event reporting. 
structures right. are right. not ideal right now, in my opinion. And so adverse event, this is a pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily like adverse event reporting. Is that right? Right. Because well, nobody wants to hear their baby's ugly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if there's something going wrong, right. um, it may mean a significant expenditure of time and talent yep. redirecting personnel mm. to address a security flaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes companies aren't thrilled with making that reallocation and correction happen. We've seen litigation arise in the context of insulin pumps in the past where security researchers have reported flaws in insulin pumps. And uh, in the early days, so Mm -hmm. when I'm talking early days, I'm talking like, you know, seven years ago. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) sometimes, Sometimes there'd be pressure asserted against the researcher and the mm. company would just deny the existence of flaws. Which is why it's important to have an independent body like the Ex- FDA or FDC yes. overseeing it. Exactly. And that's changed now because of the FDA's increased involvement. We recently had a company with pacemaker uh, vulnerability that initially denied the existence of the vulnerability, sued the researcher. The FDA issued a recall on mm-hmm. the, the pacemaker system. And that wow. was a uh, an important moment in the history of patient safety and in these Internet of Bodies well, devices. You, so that pre- seems pretty expensive. Patients on, who are already ill have to go back into the hospital and put themselves at risk of even being in the hospital. And- so in this case, it just meant that the patient had to go to the doctor yep. and have the doctor update the software okay, on okay. the device. So what a recall means in the context of Internet of Bodies devices is also going to be case-specific, and that's some of the nuance that we're dealing with here. It's all of the nuances of hardware and software engineering layered onto the nuances of the human body as a weird environment that can't be controlled in the same ways. So, um, oh, that's tough for tech <laughs> to swallow. Exactly. A situation exactly. that can't be controlled. So let's talk about let's let's go dark for a minute. Let's talk about some of the unintended consequences. Like I actually want to understand examples of like what could possibly happen if a you know internet of body if one of these devices implanted melded into you um, goes wrong, doesn't get updated, has some kind of security issue. Like what is one to two examples that you think really. You know, I mean, listen, I think your role, and like when I worked at Twitter, I like absolutely loved the trust and safety team because they were always coming up with the worst case scenario of what could possibly Twitter could be used for. And, you know, this was like in 2010. And, and I mean, they are doing the best they can, I think. But um, it was always very helpful to have that kind of sober perspective in the room. And I feel like this is a bit what you're offering, right? Like, and it can be a bit of a downer for people who are just so excited about the technology, but it's so important to understand the, the the realities. So give our listeners like one or two examples of like how it goes dark. Sure. So one of the things that security professionals are really good at doing is extrapolating from prior attacks. So uh, some of us remember the WannaCry uh uh, ransomware uh, mm-hmm. epidemic that hit. Uh, give, give us, oh. So it was a uh, malicious piece of code that hijacked machines in hospitals, in the National Health Service, and in other places. Okay. And so what happened in that case is that we got lucky and a security researcher uh, happened to stumble upon a URL that the attackers had not registered and he was able to redirect and stem the attack in that case. But anytime you have a set of hardware, software, machines, and 
these devices, whether they're in the body or outside the body, they're mm -hmm. just computers. Anytime you have vulnerable machines, those machines can potentially be compromised and owned, uh, controlled by mm -hmm. a remote third party if the vulnerability is severe enough. So I'll give you two worst case scenarios. Okay. One is directly off of WannaCry, and the other is kind of the worst case scenario of what can happen with the, the brain implants in those third generation devices that we were just talking about. So imagine that instead of hospital machines getting hijacked with ransomware, imagine that it is um, a nursing home full of elderly patients with artificial pancreases, and they get some sort of notification on their phones, your pancreas is going to be shut down remotely mm. unless you <laughs> send, you know, a Bitcoin to God. this address. Right. Okay. So those patients may not know what Bitcoin is. They may not know how their artificial pancreas works. Mm -hmm. I they're imagine a call a user support line. Yeah, they're, they're going to call a support hold. line. And the user support line may or may not understand even how to address something like right, this. Right. And one of the concerns is that we see only limited education happening in medical schools mm -hmm. and in nursing schools and in other places, even of health professionals. So the doctor that prescribed that device may not know how to handle mm -hmm. it. So the patient may then call a grandchild and instead of asking the grandchild to help them turn the machine off and on again, it's about turning the artificial pancreas on and off again mm -hmm. or figuring out, you know, I can just see this universe of grandkids right. sitting in a different state trying to figure out how to send oh. Bitcoin to oh, save like, grandma's life. Oh, my God, my grandma's right? calling me again about her pancreas. Right. What do I do? Right. It's like right. my dad calling me asking how For to use support. Twitter. I yeah. love you, Dad. But it's, <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, it's like when, yeah. when I go see my, my parents, whom I love dearly, but I walk in the yeah. door, hi, how are you? Here's everything that's broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's the second? What's What's this, what's another terrible? Uh, sure, and I, I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh at any of this because unfortunately right. I think It'll it's be it's, it's yeah. looming. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the the one that deeply worries me with respect to the brain implants, because these are devices that allow for reading and writing in the design that's being used in in some cases based on best available reported information, it means that a remote attacker might be able to write things to people's brains. And we've kind of built a world that presupposes that we come up with our opinions independently, and then mm -hmm. having thought about things, we exercise autonomous acts, mm -hmm. everything from what we buy to how we vote to the conversations we have. But in the world where there's a chip with potentially a remote third party mm. interacting with your brain, we start to see a little bit of a slide in being able to identify what are really our thoughts and what are really someone else's thoughts. Never mind the idea of harnessing these devices, whether it's the artificial pancreases or it's the brain implants or it's injected contact lenses that help mm -hmm. you play games better with, mm -hmm. you know, fancier AR. Mm -hmm capabilities, that can all get potentially harnessed into a botnet and be pointed at a power grid or a hospital mm -hmm. or other sensitive targets. And so you may end up with your body unwittingly participating in criminal attacks 
in denial of, distributed denial of service attacks, and you might not even know it. Interesting. Wow. Well, and and also I wasn't gonna. That that makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. That scenario is is totally disturbing. The other thing I was thinking about as you were talking about it was maybe not like engaging in criminal activity, but maybe like voting in a certain way or yeah, voting in a treating way. someone a certain way and. That's so interesting because when I think about the struggles that Google and Facebook are having right now around, you know, manipulation of their products by by the Russians or by other entities, other networks that have, uh, shall we say, an axe to grind and, and a political belief to push propaganda, misinformation, it's already kind of happening, right? Like people believe they've come up with these ideas themselves, but really they've been manipulated by misinformation. And so I think what you're talking about is almost the next step. And by the way, it just so pisses me off because it's like humanity is so impacted by this technology. And, you know, what you're painting is a is the next level. Maybe that'll actually help technology companies understand how information is. That's my hope. So by identifying these problems, I'm hoping that we build thoughtfully. And we don't build just because we can. So uh, I call this the better with bacon problem, the way that some chefs love to throw bacon on everything. In IoT, we sort of love to throw internet connectivity on everything, whether it really enhances the experience of the product or not. So if you really love bacon and you get that surprise bacon that was undisclosed on the menu, or even if it was disclosed and you can't parse it out, it's blended in, you really love bacon, you're like, oh, awesome, bacon, yum. But if you're a vegetarian and say the bacon wasn't disclosed on the menu or you can't pick it out, you have a completely different experience with that particular meal. And in fact, it may destroy the meal for you. Mm -hmm. And say you have an allergy to bacon and it wasn't disclosed, you've just exposed yourself to a whole layer of risk that you Mm -hmm. might not know Mm -hmm. was there. Mm -hmm. And so that's something else that we've seen happening with IoT. I call that a builder bias, where there's a push to ship fast and to get it out there and then, oh, we'll clean up security and privacy questions later. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work when the possible harm and the costs are human bodies being damaged in potentially permanent ways. That model of shipping fast and hard does not work. Mm. And that's where the law is going to inevitably step in. Because even the least tech-savvy judges are not going to be okay with bricked arms and physical damage happening so to pres- someone has a prosthetic arm that's run by a computer and when you say brick you mean like they just stop updating the software yeah or sometimes uh, I fear it might be even more uh, kind of aggressive so if you look at the way that some acquisitions in tech are happening there's a famous incident with well famous in nerd circles I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a nerd circle Andrea you're good that's why yeah. I feel so at home Um, So there was this home hub company called Revolve that was purchased by the Nest unit of of Google. And uh, for whatever internal reasons, they decided to deactivate the home hubs. So the consumers who had purchased these hubs thought they were buying something without a death date in the near future. Mm -hmm. But because all of this software is partially wrapped up with end-user license agreements, the EULAs that we all click yes on, websites, and that nobody really reads, 
all of these devices have software that comes with EULAs. And so when the people who bought right. that software, uh, the, well, the home hub that came with the software, when they agreed to that, it meant that the a newly uh, acquired uh the acquirer could basically shut off access to that device. So not only was it deemed obsolete, but they actually bricked, they killed the devices through a remote update, mm -hmm. which enraged the cybers, as you can imagine. So the internet right. exploded in, in annoyance. And ultimately, it was resolved with some... Did, did Google send everyone to, new Nest? Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. There was. Uh, I can't remember exactly how uh, they compensated the right. impacted consumers, but right. they they made it go away. But it was a little troubling to me that the anticipation of large scale annoyance didn't happen when they were debating whether to brick this device. So imagine it's not a home hub. It's not a cost they were considering internally. Or maybe they did, but it was a pretty low, it was low on the priority list. So what happens if you brick someone's prosthetic Well, arm? exactly, right? So if it's if it's a home hub, okay, your lights don't go on, your heat doesn't go on, your, your uh, mm -hmm. front door may not open. But if it's your prosthetic arm, mm -hmm you're suddenly experiencing a whole other level of dysfunction and inconvenience and potentially expense and pain and suffering, as you were referencing earlier. If you have this robotic arm that is attached to your body, sutured into your body, mm -hmm. which is what the next generation of prosthetics is, it's interwoven with mm -hmm. the mechanics and the bits and bytes mm -hmm. weaving into the corpus, the, right. the flesh and bone of humans, when you have that level of interconnection, it creates new levels of functionality, which is great for the users, but it also adds this next level of risk mm -hmm. that someone who remotely has access to the code base, either for updating purposes or bricking purposes, has functionally a degree of control over your arm yeah. that you might not have anticipated. Totally. I can imagine, I don't know who would say this, this is a very cynical point of view. I was going to say the tech companies, so though I don't know. You imagine someone saying, well, that's just like the cost of this new society that you might have, this is this is the deal. You signed the user license agreement. You said that if the software was discontinued, your product wouldn't work, and so be it. So that's the question that we really need to step back and ask ourselves. Is that the society we want to build? And the baseline mm. that exists, I think, across industry, across academia, across consumers, and across you know, judges and regulators, I don't think there's a shared baseline on what we're building. Mm. And that's one of the things that worries me. So uh, if you think about the default of what a human body is, mm -hmm. is it just a carbon-based operating system that's last gen and needs to be upgraded as soon as possible because it's not as pristinely controllable as robotic parts would be? Right. You know, footnote, yesterday when my laptop crashed and I had to restart it, or when my phone right. <laughs> apps malfunction. Um, I, I don't know that our ecosystem is ideally stable so that it's fair to say that we have a pristinely controlled robotic environment. Right. You know? But uh, nevertheless, so is the, the human body this last-gen carbon operating system? On the other hand, a few notches over on that 
spectrum, you have the idea of the human body as the baseline that needs to be preserved and, you know, kind of like the way that otters use sticks to get food. You know, we start with the baseline of the human body and then we build some tools that help extend our capabilities. And there's variation in between there. So one step over from the human body preservation camp is something like uh, human-machine symbiosis, where you figure out what humans are really good at, and you figure out what the state of technology is that highlights the strengths of machine-based systems, and you create a balance between which kinds of functions are delegated to technology and which kinds of functions are squarely remaining with humans. Oh, interesting. But again, that requires a level of trust, you know, a little bit. Who's, who's done this? Well, Europe? Sweden? <laughs> this is, this <laughs> no is the Wild West. This yeah. is the Wild West. So okay. um, these conversations are ones that are simultaneously happening yeah. in Europe. So I'm actually talking about the Internet of Bodies with the Council of Europe in November. So they're thinking about this stuff. They care about it. It's directly in line with the deeper thinking behind GDPR, the data protection protection that. Uh, went into effect recently. Um, But on the other hand, there is this counterpoint and push toward data portability, maximum sharing of information, Mm -hmm. et cetera, which has clear benefits, but it also potentially comes with risks if it's not done carefully to intersect with these security concerns, particularly as software and hardware uses the human body as a technology platform and comes with the risk of physical harm as well as security and privacy and um, other kinds of harms to society and national security. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Dr. Andrea Matwishan. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com A few more questions. One is, who should take ownership of this in the United States? Is it the FDA? Is it the FTC? Who is it? I think it needs to be a shared effort across multiple agencies. So there are little bits of these questions that impact the work of multiple regulators. So the Federal Trade Commission has traditionally engaged with consumer products and Uh, marketing and advertising practices, Mm -hmm. but they're a comparatively small agency. So as we've seen in the discussions over, say, tech antitrust Mm -hmm. uh, of policing, there are, I think, uh, fairly identified uh, scaling issues in that agency. So what I would propose is that I think they need an injection of additional lines and a new practice group. I think they need a Mm -hmm. technology practices group Mm -hmm. that looks at these issues broadly. Mm -hmm. And within that technology practices group, you would have teams that work with other agencies in partner relationships. So, for example, an IOB team that would work with the FDA to help determine where the line is between a medical device and merely a health and healthy living 
kind of device. Like so a Fitbit. Yeah, right. So right. The, the Fitbits were not medical devices. Nice to have, yeah. But something like a digital pill, which is inside the right. body, that right. might not that also might not be a medical device. But then we get into things like you know, the augmented reality contact lenses, well, that's really in the body, but yet it's not performing a diagnostic function of right. a disease, which is generally the way So there's a need, there's devices. a real need for a cross-functional there serious is. group, and that, that yeah. doesn't currently exist. And I don't even, I don't even think this president, we, we have a chief technology officer anymore. I don't know that we have, anyways, it's really interesting to think about like how important it is to think ahead, right? And yeah. to set up structures. Yeah. And to, it, protect, it, it, to protect Americans and really anyone in society that is going to be using these devices. Yeah, and because these issues are so complicated and they're bound up with those contract right. issues we were talking right. about right. and the trade practices issues yep. about how companies acquire companies yep. and what they yep. decide to what do with those product lines, all of that is a big kind of stew. And so you, you really need a focused group of people who work on these issues, and they need finding authority, <laughs> and they need guidance-making authority yeah. to keep up with the times a little bit better. Well, and the, the next-gen issue, in, in my mind, that we're already seeing play out that would also fall into this group is the set of issues around social credit. Mm, so right, uh, right. obviously, lenders, insurers would love to have a real-time feed from your brain. Or right. uh, if that's too far out for, for folks, imagine a real-time feed from the injected contact lenses right. in your eyes. And those are things, that, so the contact lenses have already been patented by multiple companies. Right. So this isn't a fictional product right. that I've made up. There are already patents from major tech companies right. for injected lenses performing various functions. So, well, okay. <laughs> so glad you're doing this research and that there's a community of people doing it so that we can understand it better. Um, so let me ask you this, one of my last questions. What are your personal habits when it comes to devices and privacy? As someone in the field who is aware of the dangers of not just the Internet of Bodies, but the Internet of Things, how do you personally, what's your relationship with technology? What are your hard no's? And would you ever have a you know smart prosthetic arm or an artificial pancreas? Yeah, I have such a love-hate relationship with my gadgets. So... You know, on the one hand, I think the internet is this amazing transformative thing that changed so many people's lives for the better. I love being able to, you know, chit chat with my friend in sitting in Australia at the same time as you know my friend in France, my my friend in the UK. You know, staggered schedules like that's amazing, mm-hmm. and that's not something that existed when I grew up. So I'm I'm dating myself here, but uh, I was in the first class of freshmen when I got to college who got email accounts. It was mm-hmm. we're talking telnet, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, then browsers came and these amazing pictures. And I'm like, okay, this is a thing. This is going to be good. So life is better. Life is better in some ways. But then, you know, we didn't anticipate well enough in the way that people would repurpose these technologies. Mm -hmm. And that's the joy and pain of all of these technologies. They're dual use. Mm -hmm. So these things that can be wonderful enhancers of our lives will inevitably be repurposed by darker forces to be used against us in Mm -hmm. whatever ways are possible. Mm -hmm. So that's how I approach my own life. You know, every device, there's a phone sitting here right now. And I could... In theory, walk around with the phone in, 
you know, a Faraday bag, but then that would limit its functionality, and I need that functionality to be able to work with it. But at the same time, am I aware that uh, even though I have Bluetooth turned off and I have my Wi-Fi turned off, and I will take those extra steps to disable mm-hmm. those, which not not everyone does. So that's that's one thing that maybe I'm more vigilant yeah. about. Bluetooth is, as we mentioned previously, an inherently um, vulnerable demonstrated to be a vulnerable technology. So keeping Bluetooth off is, is like when I walk step. around my AirPods, whatever they're called, AirPods. Mm-hmm. A hacker will look at you and be like, "Perfect target." <laughs> <laughs> well, and so now. You know, imagine that it's not just your AirPod; it's you know implanted yeah. surgically in yeah. your ear, right? Um, and and so cochlear implants are a really great um, case study. So hearing aids, hearing aids could be potentially compromised depending on how they're they're coded. Um, but the cochlear implants are interesting because they raise the social questions that some other technologies haven't. So um, the deaf community has a strong community identity. And so uh, the arrival mm. of cochlear implants, in, and I'm not talking about currently, I'm talking about sort of historically, this has been going on, um, was a source of intra-group discussion mm-hmm. and uh, divergent opinions mm. because for some members of the community, the cochlear implant was viewed as a delegitimization of the way that they were born. Mm. And mm. so it was saying that they were somehow lesser than. Mm. That it had to be fixed. It had to, that it, they were that they needed to be fixed. Yeah. And they didn't view themselves that way. Yeah. And especially as you dig into how cochlear implants work, you start to see where they're coming from because, right. you know, apart from the dignitary aspect of it, like as a dignity matter, obviously, you know, I understand where they're coming from. Right. But as a technical matter, when, the more I learned about the way that cochlear implants work, the more I started to see the pushback. So cochlear implants don't create hearing in the way that uh, non deaf person mm-hmm. hears. Instead, if you're a candidate for a cochlear implant, what they need to do is they need to kill the remaining hearing in that ear mm. and give you a different kind of hearing that's mm. mechanically created. Oh, wow. So you're not getting, you know, air quotes, restored hearing. Right. You're getting a different kind of hearing. Wow. And so making the assessment of whether you want that mechanical hearing, mechanical yep. sound. Yep. Or you want to live in a world as you are that you appreciate. Right. Uh, This has come up in court cases dealing with whether kids can be forced to have cochlear implants. Right. And the cases are not clean on this. So some of the earliest litigation that I might expect around these slightly more aggressive Internet of Bodies devices will come in the context of parents wanting to augment their children. Mm -hmm. So imagine a very competitive school district Mm -hmm. where parents with significant discretionary income Mm -hmm. want to well-intentioned parents want to give their kids an edge Mm -hmm. by improving their memory. Mm Physically, mm-hmm. <laughs> with extra storage capacity, the way you upgrade your laptop, mm-hmm. um, depending on how those risks are disclosed, depending on how they analyze this, they may think they're doing a wonderful thing for their child by helping the child mm-hmm. uh, engage with the world in an augmented way. But 
as we've discussed, that comes with risks. You know, imagine— uh, Well, it also creates an extraordinary—even bigger divide in the class Exactly. Of so those are the social, yeah. the social dynamics. So it's not clear who the winners and losers are, which right. I find particularly interesting because the most augmented among mm. us— May end up win. the most easily brickable among Interesting. us. Interesting. Oh, gosh. Um, well, so, that'll motivate technology companies to think differently about it, potentially. We'll see. We'll so, see. I guess, last question. What have I not asked? What is the thing you want people to know or understand that kind of keeps you up at night? Or, or, or I guess, what is, your, what is your bottom line? So, here's one of the things that I worry about, that we are not by design but by accident— eliminating the ability to buy less connected things. So if you've ever tried to buy a car recently, trying to buy a car that doesn't have hundreds of millions of lines of code and tracks your location at all times is becoming basically impossible for a new car. And so while we're worried about having 16 different flavors of the same kind of IoT gadget, we're not thinking through what we're losing in the degree of connectivity on competition. So that's one thing that that I notice, but the thing that really keeps me up at night is, um, and this may be a little law nerdy, but secure transactions and bankruptcy law and the databases that are generated from this Mm. set of devices. So let's say that you have a live feed coming from your eyes or a live feed coming from your brain, and you have a contractual service relationship where some company is storing this information in the cloud for you Mm -hmm. and you can search it, et cetera. So those agreements that you've signed let that uh, set of providers or single provider share that information, usually in their sole discretion with Mm -hmm. whomever they wish. So it might be for marketing purposes, it might be for law enforcement purposes Mm -hmm. through the third-party doctrine, or it might be because they go into bankruptcy and because in bankruptcy, the primary interests are the interests of the creditors who funded Mm -hmm. the company, the court, under current bankruptcy law, may, but does not have to, appoint a privacy ombudsman. But the bankruptcy trustee, the privacy ombudsman, they're not explicitly consumer representatives. Mm-hmm. And the FTC sometimes intervenes in bankruptcies of databases of particularly sensitive information. But again, limited bandwidth agency. Mm-hmm. So as these bankruptcies get more common, we're going to end up with these databases and potentially contract rights into some of the Mm-hmm. devices mm-hmm. getting bought and sold in bankruptcy with potentially without the kinds of restrictions that the people who originally collected the connected data. these devices yeah. and implanted them in their bodies wow. had ever anticipated. So mm-hmm. people sometimes get twitchy about their employers or their insurers knowing exactly where they are, how right. fast they're driving. Right. Well, if it's your phone that's tracking you, you can just turn it off or put it in the Faraday bag. But if a device is in your body, right. how do you get that out? And right. employers are chipping their employees increasingly frequently. So you leave your job, and what do you do about the chip that's in you? Yeah. Does your employer still potentially wow. get to track wow. you? Well, Dr. Mitchwishan, thank you so much for joining Recode Decode for this enlightening, um, fascinating conversation. Thank you for raising the questions you're raising, and hope to have you back again Anytime. in a few months or in a year to, to hear what's new in the field. Love to. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thank you again to Dr. Andrea Matwishan for coming on the show. And thanks to Kara Swisher for letting me hack my way into the show again. Oh, anytime. I love when people hack me. No, not really. Give me the microphone back immediately. But before you do, where can my listeners follow you online, Erica? You can follow me on Twitter at Erica America. All right, I'm kidding. That Her biohacking show was like really one of the top shows we've had, so I should not complain. Keep doing these. It's a really fascinating topic. You can find me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Our producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.